The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Good. Great to be Great back. To see you again. Yes, you too. Any prayer requests, Father, as we begin the show tonight? Always. Yes, of course. I ask continued prayers for Joseph Percher, of course, and for Bernie Kunkel. For a little uh, blaze. And, uh, well, there are quite a few other, Donna King and so many other dear souls we know, around the missions who are suffering. And please remember Jimmy and Marilyn uh, in Florida. And uh, I, I won't mention last names unless I have the okay to do so. But uh, in any case, uh, there are so many, and they're committed to the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. So one need only remember that and uh, pray for all those on that prayer request list, and God knows them all, and you'll uh, communicate the, the blessing of that act of charity of your prayers to, to them, okay. to all those souls. Perfect. Thank you, Father. We, uh, we ended the last program, Father, talking about some uh, questions that were sent to us in regards to the Antichrist and mm -hmm. uh, Robert Hugh Benson's uh, work, The Lord of the World, and we had um, several more questions that we wanted to uh, try and work through in regards to that uh, to that topic. Um, so first one I have here, Father, how long will the Antichrist hold power over the earth? Generally conceded three and a half years, um, essentially the, the length of our Lord's public life, um, that he will actually have consolidated power and be recognized as the world ruler. Of course, you know, for some time before that, he will have been working his way into that position, so he would have been accumulating more and more power for perhaps years ahead of that time. But he would have actually succeeded in, uh, in his estimation, in the estimation, the common estimation of men, of having uh, achieved the role of, like, the presider over the entire world for three and a half years. Wow, okay. Uh, eventually, will people other than the elect be able to perceive his falseness? Uh, well, to perceive his falseness, um, perhaps so, but you see, uh, as St. Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, those who will not be deceived by him will be those who love the truth. And those who do not love the truth will, will be basically abandoned to, by their choice to the, quote, operation of error. Right? And um, so there, there may be those who do not love the truth who will recognize the Antichrist as even the greatest liar in all of history, but they will admire him for that. Um, you know, the, the entire world will become essentially uh, the great liar's club. Uh, denying the truth, denying faith, faith in Christ, um, and uh, be enemies of the truth. 
Our Lord said to Pontius Pilate, for this was I born and for this came I into the world to bear witness to the truth. Anyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. The time St. Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there will be, a, well, you might say a relative handful, a remnant of faithful souls who will love the truth enough to just brave all, all opposition to the truth. They will hold, hold to the truth in spite of everything. Uh, they will not be deceived. Um, the question here is, will those who follow the Antichrist uh, be truly deceived by him and uh, consider him to be the great truth-teller in terms of what they consider the truth? I don't know if any of them will, will actually, um, you know, actually see that he is the great deceiver. But the fact is, those who follow him uh, will follow him because they admire they admire him they admire all that he stands for uh, he will be the great uh, symbol uh, of human liberation from God and uh, the actually humanity declaring its own divinity okay father is it known which country the Antichrist will come from are there opinions on this question uh, why do you think Benson has him come from Vermont, in the United States? Well, it is interesting. Monsignor Robert U. Benson um, says that the Antichrist will have been a senator of the United States government in Vermont, right? And uh, I have no idea, really. I've asked some people and, and looked into that. Um, there's speculation. I don't know if Monsignor Benson, Benson himself ever commented on that or answered a question about that. It's hard for me to imagine that between 1907 when the book first appeared and 1914 when he died, I think it was 1914, that someone somewhere at some time didn't ask him uh, why Vermont and why a United States Senator Vermont. Um, but if that question was asked and if he answered it, I don't know. Perhaps some of our readers know or can find out why. Um, some have speculated that uh, it's because uh, Vermont is like is New England, okay, and the English would have had some sort of a an affinity with New England. I'm not sure um, what that necessarily would have been. Uh, Vermont, I don't know if it was very liberal at the time. Um, um, perhaps Monsignor Benson chose it because. It seemed to be the most, most innocuous place to choose, you know. Um, if he had said the Antichrist would be, come from Birmingham or uh, London, or that might have been much more uh, controversial and perhaps distracting for people, you know. But I don't know. Uh, but my first thought when I heard that he had, uh, when I saw that he had chosen Vermont was, and especially at that time, uh, he was writing the book in the earliest 1900s, the begin opening years of the 1900s. Um, I thought, well, you know, the, the encyclical Longinqua Oceani uh, came out in 1895. Pope Leo XIII wrote that encyclical praising the United States of America. And then four years later, in 1899, he published another encyclical, like a follow-up encyclical, warning against errors within America. In fact, errors that would be called Americanism. Um, that was the encyclical Testament of Valencia, 
And uh, Pope Pius the um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth warned that there was a sort of a mentality that was arising in the Catholic Church in America that somehow the American Catholic Church was sort of special and had, um, shall we say, a new and improved Catholicism. Um, that it, it might he didn't use the word syncretistic, but um, you know, it would tend that way. Uh, it was more of an activist church uh, that, that even despised the passive virtues of humility and, and so on. Um, so he warned that this could be a very serious problem. Uh, perhaps Monsignor Benson, aware of that encyclical, saw a danger there, and perhaps he saw that mentality uh, producing an antichrist. I don't know. I had heard that uh, Monsignor Benson actually thought the Antichrist would arise from uh, among the English and that he would be uh, born and bred in the, theos the theosophical cults. That uh, he would be basically uh, formed in theosophy, which was an occult, occultist group, uh, and still is. I mean, they're very much, still very much um, at work. They claim, well, I mean, the theosophists claim that there will be a Lord Maitreya, a great world leader who will uh, come into the world, uh, be revealed to mankind, and in turn, when he's revealed to mankind, um, he will be hailed as the great Lord, Lord of the world. He will teach mankind its own divinity. Um, people my people my my age might remember about oh my goodness that's going on forty years ago now. Uh, major newspapers throughout the world, twenty five of the leading newspapers throughout the entire world, including the New York Times, um, carried full page ads. Must have cost an enormous amount of money to run all these ads on the same day, uh, announcing the arrival of Lord Maitreya in the world. Uh, this really did, I should say, get some attention back then. Um, you're talking about millions of readers uh, seeing these full-page ads announcing the, the arrival of Lord Maitreya. So there was a lot of money behind this, a lot of influence behind this, clearly. Um, but his, his message, Lord Maitreya's message, will be uh, that mankind really is God. Well, that's the Gnostic message. That is the message of all of Gnosticism. You hear, uh, you know, people use the word Gnostic and Gnosticism very freely these days. Even Francis uses it, but it's clear that he has no concept of what it really means. But the essential message of Gnosticism is that there is a secret knowledge, and the secret knowledge is the true faith, and that is that mankind really is God. That each, of every, every one of us, you and I, we are all uh, shards of God imprisoned in this world. And our salvation comes when we realize that, when we come to realize that we are God. Uh, we are all parts of God. And uh, in, in the rebellion against the God who made this prison world to hold us, the true God, in rebelling against him, we assert our own divinity. Uh, the modern Gnostics today say that they're materialistic people who don't believe in the Spirit. He says they're the lowest of mankind. They, we have the religious people who adhere to religion and moral doctrines, and they are beginning to awaken 
but they are not yet free. And then you have the spiritual people. And those who are spiritual are the ones who realize their own divinity. And they are the ones on the way to escaping the imprisonment in this world and coming now finally moving on into reassuming their, their divine identity. You know, <clears throat> That's the modern Gnostic thinking. Um, so in any case, this all fits in very well with the message of the Antichrist. You might say that uh, the Antichrist is going to be the Gnostic, that he is going to reveal to mankind the true gnosis, uh, the true reality, the true knowledge, that mankind itself is God. Um, and um, so uh, he will be hailed, hailed as the greatest representation, uh, as, as it were, the finest expression of humanity, uh, the most perfect man, right? And uh, the whole world will adore him when, when he convinces mankind that humanity is divinity. And he is the highest expression of humanity. He is the highest expression of divinity, therefore. And mankind will hail him as such. He will show what we would regard as uh, supernatural powers, but they're actually preternatural powers. They're powers that a devil would have, but that... Um, um, but the, 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 the uh, Antichrist will not have divine powers because he's not divine. He's only a creature. Uh, even well, though he will uh, operate, or the, the, the preternatural power of Satan will operate through him, uh, that power will be basically just nothing but a show and empty display. Very, very convincing and very dazzling uh, to to worldings, but again, to those who love the truth, they'll see right through it. They'll see it's nothing but showmanship, mm-hmm. and almost uh, they'll 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 almost despise it as though, as if to say to Satan, "Is that the best you can do? Is that all you can do, really?" Um, it's almost as though you know, if, in, in the course of an exorcism, and you see all these terrible things happening, and these strange, uh, bizarre things happening, and, and as the exorcist, you're thinking, that is so pathetic. That is that is all you've got, you know. And you're trying to impress us with this, and I think that's the attitude that the people at the end of the world will have, who love the truth, will see right through all the antics of the Antichrist. They will consider this just to be basically a a, you know, a child's play, you know, literally compared to the, the actual supernatural power of God. And they will, they will never lose sight of the fact that, that in the end our Lord will simply literally blow him away like a puff of smoke in the end and shall reveal the nothingness of this. Uh, so anyway, um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but... Um, it might have answered two or three questions at the same time, for all I know. Father, will the Antichrist only be one person? Apparently there are some... St. John says that anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior is an Antichrist. But St. Paul talks about him as being a very specific individual. Mm-hmm. A son of perdition, a man of sin, um, and the most wicked one. <clears throat> some would like to pretend... In fact, Satan would like to, to pretend that he's going to be the son of Satan as our Lord Jesus Christ is the son of God. 
But of course, that's ridiculous. Satan does not have, Lucifer has no power to generate a son. He's not a creator. He's a destroyer. And um, he's a creature, but he cannot create. All he can do is destroy, uh, try to destroy. Um, but um, um, as uh, he will try to mimic God to the extent that he can. He will even try to appear to be uh, omnipotent by the displays of power that he shows. But these displays will be just that, displays of power. They will be uh, impressive, but only insofar as uh, people can be deceived by showmanship, you know. Uh, sort of like people can be fascinated by the amazing things that magicians can do. Uh, and yet, behind it all, they know it's just a trick. It really is just a trick. Um, but also, he'll try to appear to be omnip uh, omniscient and omnipresent. You know, we know that God is everywhere, absolutely, and he sustains everything that exists in existence by the power of his will. Uh, Satan is desperate to try to show himself as omnipresent, but the only way he can show himself as being present everywhere is by basically symbolism. And so he has to pollute everything so that everything in the world is somehow connected in your mind, in our minds, with him. Everything speaks to us of him. So he has to put his symbols everywhere. He has to put his stamp on everything so that everywhere we look, everything <clears throat> reminds us of Satan. He wants to fill the world with his symbolism. He wants to fill the world with his music <clears throat> so that everywhere we turn, everything we hear resounds with his thoughts, or at least the thoughts he wants us to think. He wants to so pollute the world that everything carries that stench of hell. Everything, everywhere you look. And there are plenty of people in the world, unfortunately, who've gone along with this. And they've become so perverted that they can't think a wholesome thought. Everything they see or hear brings to mind something dirty, something filthy, something disgusting, something degrading. And they've let, they've basically surrendered their uh, imagination to him. And uh, Satan revels in that because that's the closest he can get to be only being omnipresent. It's just um, leaving a foul smell everywhere, you know, and tainting everything in the world with his touch. Hmm. But, but he's not God. He can't be. He's constantly reminded of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, his abject limitation before God. Um, okay, very good. Well, uh, next question on the list here. Father, how many, uh, the Antichrist, his thoughts, how many of those will be his own? How many of those will actually be from the devil? Will he, uh, will he think the things that he does are of his own free will, or will he realize that he is simply acting for the devil? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I mean, my own opinion, I mean, these are all my own opinions, the church hasn't formally taught any of these things. Uh, there are fathers and doctors of the church who've spoken about these things, written about these things very eloquently. There are a number of authors who, who've written about the Antichrist. I mean, you have uh, Father Bishop Manning, Archbishop Manning. Uh, you have Father Hushid, right? You have uh, uh, those who've commented on the on the book of the uh, the book of the uh, Apocalypse. Now called by many the book of Revelation. All books of the Bible are books of Revelation. But in any case, um, so there's been quite a bit written about the Antichrist. Um, 
and um, some of it bearing an imprimatur, you know, that there's nothing contrary to the faith in this. That's not saying that everything in here is like Catholic dogma. Mm -hmm. It's just that there's nothing contrary to the faith in the book. Um, but my, in my opinion, the Antichrist will be the son of perdition the, and the uh, man of sin, so that he will have so completely surrendered his intellect to the power of Satan uh, that Satan will dominate him so completely by his own will, by his own intention. He wants to be possessed. He wants to be completely and perfectly possessed. He wants to be the most perfectly possessed person who ever lived. That's what the Antichrist, he will invite that. He will crave that. He will beg Satan for that. And Satan will actually answer that. So I don't think he will have an independent thought by his own choice that he will have tried to achieve some kind of a mind meld, as it were, with Satan so that uh, Lucifer will actually be the author and director of all of his thoughts. He will be completely surrendered to him. That's my own Wow. Thought on the subject. Okay. It's a horrible thing, right? Yes. Uh, the closest Satan could become to becoming incarnate, uh, actually possessing this individual mm -hmm. uh, so completely. Wow. Uh, Father, what is the significance of the number 666? We read about that in the uh, in sacred scriptures. What, what do you think is the significance? Well, in, in uh, numerology, 666 was considered to be the, uh, the number of extreme imperfection. Seven, seven, seven. The number seven was considered to be um, a, a number of extreme goodness. Uh, eight was even considered to be the number of, of absolute perfection. Uh, six is showing that there's something coming short. Uh, there, is, there are certain perfections that are there, and yet the crowning perfection is missing. Um, and that's how it is with Satan. I mean, he was the, the, the greatest, St. Thomas would say, the greatest of the great archangels. But there was something missing in him. Uh, not by God's own design, but by Lucifer's choice, right? Uh, that he considered himself to be too, too great, too perfect to have to serve God. Be subject to God, dependent upon God. So he rebelled, right? Especially, as St. Thomas says, when he was given the a task of placing himself at our service. And so he said, I will not serve. And considers us to be his great enemy now, because that's after all what God was asking him to do. And he would not, in his mind, lower himself to do that. Um, so God, I mean, who has the divine, divine one-upmanship in, in the most perfect, powerful way, becomes one of us, right? And uh, actually is the suffering servant of God, as the prophet Isaiah says, and uh, delivers us from the power of Satan by, uh, by dying on the cross for us. That in itself must drive Lucifer absolutely insane. Well, pride drives one insane, but that must drive him to the ultimate of insanity, right? The ultimate of his pride rebelling against this, that, that God would do such a thing for us. Mm -hmm. Satan cannot understand love, uh, the charity of God, God's love for us, uh, just completely escapes him and offends him. You know? He's not capable of it. And it, uh, it, it doesn't humble him. It humiliates him. He can't stand it. But in any case, um, 
the uh, the malice of this uh, most wicked one will be so far gone that he, uh, he he will really be represented by this number six, but six 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 indicating the absolute abyss of of imperfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there were a word anti-perfection, the absolute rejection of perfection. Uh, if our Lord said of the one who would betray him, he would wish that he had never been born. Imagine how Lucifer might wish he had never been created. How he hates his own existence because his own existence is actually a re- reject is a reflection of the power and the perfection of God. And that's the very first perfection anything can have, is the perfection of existence. St. Thomas says again that uh, even the rocks and the, the dirt under our feet show a, a certain uh, vestige of the perfection of God by the very fact that they exist, uh, which is an, an infinite distance from non-existence to coming into existence shows a certain perfection. And that's the very you know, primordial ref- perfection there is, the first act to exist. And Lucifer has that. And there he would find, again, as again, St. Thomas speaks of it, the very vestige of God, God himself in the fact that he exists by the, by the will of God, holding him, sustaining him in existence. And then you look at all the other perfections that were supposed to be there, of intellection and volition, to know what is true and to love what is good and how he's perverted them. One might say, uh, of all those who have low self-esteem, Lucifer, oddly enough, for all of his pride, must have the lowest self-esteem because he literally hates his own perfections. Wow. Yeah, imagine having to exist like that forever because, I mean, you're created immortal. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um, and by choice, right? Inconceivable, inconceivable. You can see the malice, therefore, of Satan lashing out like some wild beast, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what the Antichrist will be. Father, uh, next question. Why do you think Benson has the Pope give up all the churches in Italy to have control over Rome? Well, when they say, see, I'd have to go back and reread that part again, because I imagine there's a, a reason stated in the book, but I don't know that. Uh, it's been some years since I've read the book. Uh, I've made the effort since these questions have come in to go back and reread, but uh, I've been drawn away by various things. Uh, so uh, I guess, again, I would say I don't know. I can only express the opinion that the Pope realizes that uh, he's the successor of Peter as um, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and uh, he cannot, if he cannot hold everything, he must at least hold that Sea of Peter sacred, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the novel, of course. I mean, you know, it's, uh, we're not talking about Francis or the others. Uh, we're talking about the novel of uh, Monsignor Robert U. Benson, written, written in 1907, and his concept of what a true pope would do, and that he believes that his primary responsibility is to hold the Sea of Rome. And that's what our Lord wants him to do, and that's why he does it. <clears throat> and uh, if he has a choice, uh, I mean, I gather from the question, I have to go back and check the book again, I gather from the question that he has a choice of either 
holding the See of Rome or holding churches elsewhere throughout the rest of Italy. Um, and he has to make, he has no choice but to make that choice. And so he chooses Rome. Mm-hmm. That being the case, I can understand why. Um, because he's holding to the See of Peter where he as Pope is, is bound, mm-hmm. honor bound, right? I mean, we saw in the history of the church, popes leave Rome and go off and inhabit, uh, well, Avignon, right? The great, they call it the Babylonian captivity of the church, as though France was Babylon of the 1300s. But that was very unnatural for the church. Um, uh, From her supernatural institution by Christ as... as, um, as you know, the, the the Pope's place was in Rome, and the Church understood that from the very beginning when Emperor Constantine uh, picked up stakes and, and moved uh, the capital of the empire from Rome. Uh, the Pope would not go with him, but stayed in Rome because he knew that's where he was divinely meant to be. Right, and so I guess I, I would say that Monsignor Robert Ubanson saw it that way too, mm-hmm. and so has the Pope make that decision. Okay. Uh, also in the book, why does the Pope call for the dissolution of family ties, including between parents and children, as a requirement for the order of Christ crucified? Uh, well, you know, the, he describes uh, the Pope, right, as uh, Percy, then, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, he's an Englishman, right, has a head of white hair, shocks of white hair there, and uh, he... Uh, Describes him as being having a very, very uh, kind of British outlook on things, sort of like the stiff upper lip and type of thing. So, on. Um, and um, he establishes a religious order. The, the other religious orders have been pretty well smashed by the Antichrist and by the uh, the princes of the earth under the domain, the sway of the Antichrist. And so he establishes the uh, the order of Christ crucified, right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And um, and he requires that those who enter that order um, renounce all earthly ties, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one can understand that very well if one realizes that uh, even our nations, when we have people enter a special uh, military service, uh, they have to cut themselves off pretty much from communication with the families. Uh, they have to go very deeply, almost um, undercover, as it were, because they're going to be sent on important missions. And uh, they, they cannot be in constant contact with their loved ones. It's a great sacrifice they make. Um, Obviously, it's something that can be abused by, by nations uh, of the world for naturalistic and anti-supernatural purposes. We know that. But we see it happen. I mean, our own Navy SEALs and our own Rangers, and our own, they, in a sense, they can keep contact with their families. But when they are on missions, they have to basically uh, cut off communication. Um, lest they betray any information that would um, thwart their mission. You know? Well, you have a case toward the end of the world here where the Antichrist is holding sway, and you have these religious orders, uh, a religious order established for the purpose of 
being kind of like the church's special troops, special ops, as it were, to uh, oppose Satan, to save souls, um, carry out the will of Christ. And they have to be able and willing to not let earthly ties in any way uh, uh, turn them aside. Um, they have to be entirely responsive to the command of Christ. Even in the, uh, throughout the religious order, it says the vow of obedience, right? And when a man or a woman enters a religious order, takes a solemn vow of obedience, or enters a religious congregation, takes a simple vow of obedience, they, ha they have to basically bind themselves, not to a particular superior, but to the rule, the constitutions, that govern that religious order or congregation is. That's what they're, that's what they're vowing obedience to. Uh, are they vowing obedience to a particular religious superior? Well, insofar as according to the rule that they are bound to, that person is the religious superior at that time. Yes, to that extent, right? But their obedience is actually to the to the to the rule uh, of life that they have to follow. And so they have to surrender, to a certain extent, uh, control over contact with their loved ones. Um, all the more so, you would say, that in this time of the dominion of the Antichrist, those who would enroll in a religious order would have to be completely uh, unfettered by uh, earthly affections. That Their absolute tie is to the will of God, and they must be ready to carry it out at a moment's notice, uh, or with no notice whatsoever. Uh, with all their heart and soul. Mm -hmm. What are they thinking? What they're thinking is, the best thing I can do for my loved ones is to offer myself as a sacrifice for the will of God. And I will gain the graces for them uh, by doing what I'm doing much more effectively than I would by uh, sending them birthday cards and, and appearing at, the, uh, at their uh, you know, other family get-togethers. I'm committing myself to Christ. They know that. And uh, I will be of much more service and good to my family in doing that than I ever could be in the world. Um, so that, that's their mind. Hey, look, look at the earliest days of the church when, when those who uh, became catechumens and then were baptized, they really entered a church which was illegal, which is subject, constantly subject to persecution of uh, imprisonment, confiscation of goods, and even deaths, even tortured deaths. They, they had to do that, so they had to have the mentality of being free of the world and the worldly ties. And what they did, they did out of love for their loved ones. That's what motivated them, as well as their love for Christ. So that's, uh, that's what I recall when I read the book. That's what I, how I understood that. Mm -hmm. Father, how do you interpret what happens at the end of the book, the ending of The Lord of the World? Well, the, the Bolars are closing in on Rome with the bombs, right? Um, and uh, there's going to be this this great, uh, or is it the, the uh, actually it's Armageddon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's right. That's that's where it takes place. I think Rome was destroyed. Right? I think so. I recall that. So there's the field of Armageddon, and the Volars are closing in to destroy the last of the faithful, right? Yeah. And um, then, you know, Monsignor Benson ends his, ends his novels without really ending them. Uh, he ends his novels with some, some uh, mysterious thing of, 
the way you, you are meant to kind of uh, end it yourself, you know, in your own mind. Uh, there were people who were very unhappy with that and let him know that they didn't like the way he had ended his book. It's about, uh, but this is a good example of the Lord of the World. Um, you imagine the powers of the Antichrist being amassed now to finish the job of finishing off the church and every vestige of the church and uh, blowing dismitherines and annihilating the last of the faithful of Christ so that uh, Voltaire's wish, a cross l'enfant, finally is being realized, right? And that's how he ends it. Uh, he doesn't tell you what happens next. What do you what do you see as happening next? What does your faith tell you happens next? I don't know. If I... Do, do, do they succeed in obliterating the faith and the faithful? Oh no, 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 they don't. Right. So somehow, uh, God Himself intervenes, right? And uh, I think what you see happening next is precisely what you read in Saint Matthew's Gospel, chapter twenty-five, uh, the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. Right and confronting them, and uh, stopping them cold. Right, mm -hmm. uh, that this is the moment uh, when the lightning strikes from east to west, as it were, and Christ is revealed that he comes from heaven in a cloud, a cloud of angels. Right, the clouds of heaven. Uh, our Lord comes accompanied by the angels to confront uh, all of this evil, and to simply annihilate it, right? mm. as it were. Maybe, maybe Monsignor Benson, if you got him to talk on this subject, would say, well, <laughs> this is the moment that I see Christ returning, uh, the powers of hell receding, and Christ calling mankind to stand before him. And the first one to go will be the Antichrist. <laughs> wow. Father, um, how, uh, how do you compare what, uh, what Robert Hugh Benson shows in his novel with uh, what church fathers... Uh, or any approved sources have actually taught about the Antichrist and the end of the world. Do you see any variances between those two? Well, Monsignor Benson's book is a novel. <laughs> Obviously, the Godfathers of the Church and Doctors of the Church were not writing in novelistic <laughs> form, right? Does the novel in any way contradict um, the teaching of the Fathers and Doctors of the Church or any of the approved writings of the Church? I don't think so. I think he's just trying to basically put it in story form, saying it could happen this way, you know. He talks about Olive, right? He talks about Julian Felsenberg, the Antichrist, Julian, the apostate, uh, Felsenberg, the Jewish. I mean, that, that, that coincides very well with the writers uh, of, the, of the church throughout our history, uh, writing, kind of prophesying about this. Or even not, even just interpreting it. Uh, what they see in the book of the Apocalypse, in St. John, St. Paul chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, even those who are not attempting to prophecy, those who are just attempting, attempting to interpret what is said there, uh, say that they expect the Antichrist to be of Jewish origin, um, but also of Christian origin, that he will be born of a uh, perhaps a Christian father and a Jewish mother, but the father, the Christian, will be an apostate. And the apostate uh, side of that will come from, uh, well, be re represented by the name Julian. Um, and um, that 
you know, there are indications in the book of uh, the Apocalypse that, that the beast will have one foot on the land and one foot in the sea. Uh, the sea representing the Gentiles and the, the land representing the, uh, the Hebrews or the Jews. Uh, so there's imagery that is interpreted. But generally speaking, uh, I think Monsignor Benson uh, took the best information he had from the writings of the fathers and the doctors of the church and tried to um, write a novel depicting this in the way he, best way he could at the time in his own mind. What is interesting is that there are those who consider his book to be somewhat prophetic in that he spoke of certain inventions that lay in the future that didn't exist in his own time. Uh, the Volors, for example, uh, um, uh, you know, have some characteristics of aircraft, and he talks about them speeding their way through the air and uh, carrying passengers and cargo, and um, and a, a, he even describes something that we could describe as a modern fax machine or even uh, a modern. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, well, just long-range communication, you know. Um, and uh, he doesn't go into detail about how it would work, but he, he talks about it, which at that time might have been considered rather uh, avant-garde, rather futuristic, you know. But there are certain things he foresaw. He foresaw the death, uh, the death chambers, the the death houses where people would go to commit suicide, and it was considered to be like almost like a, a ritualistic death where they would, uh, you know, play music and lie down in the, in, the, in the pod or whatever, right? And they would slowly drift away. That's how Olive dies, tragically, actually. Uh, peaceful in the eyes of the world, but it's interesting when she does finally breathe her last, Monsignor Benson describes it in a very way, interesting way. He says, and then the walls, uh, I can't quote it exactly, but he says, the walls of her existence fell away, and then she knew. And he leaves it like that. Then she knew. He doesn't say what she knew. He just says, then, then she knew. Right? But, you know, our faith tells, her, tells us what she knew mm -hmm. and what a revolution, revelation it was to her. But she'd become completely disenchanted by the world under the reign of the Antichrist. But rather than express hope, she, she lost hope, she despaired, mm -hmm. tragically. Father, what do you think uh, was Robert U. Benson's um, main purpose, main goal in writing the book, and what should be our primary takeaway from it? I think his book is a kind of warning. I, I would take his book as a kind of warning shot to the world, that he sees developments in the world. Remember, Popeyes the Tenth had just been elected the Pope in 1903. Monsignor Benson's book was published in 1907. Now, whether he started writing the book um, after the uh, election of Pope Pius X, or he'd, perhaps he'd been working on it beforehand, I don't know. You know. I'm sure there are those who do know. But uh, when Pope Pius X was elected Pope, he agonized over whether to accept the office or not. Uh, he knew that a man could be elected but not become the Pope until he actually accepted the office. So 
it was still within his power to accept it or to reject it. Uh, Cardinal Mary del Val played a very important role in encouraging him to accept it because he believed it was truly God's will. Um, but after accepting the office, uh, just within a couple of months, Pope Pius X issued his first encyclical, A Supremi. Uh, it was almost, I think it was like almost two months to the day after his election. <laughs> and uh, and he, uh, he expressed, as I mentioned before in this program, uh, the reason why he was so reluctant to accept the, the office of the papacy was because his, he was terrified. I mean, he actually used the expression, uh, he was terrified. I mean, other popes would say, I was humbled, I was, I was I thought of my unworthiness, and so on. But he said, I was terrified to accept this office because, as he said, he feared that the times foretold by St. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he even cites it, had, were coming to pass even at that time. And the Antichrist might already even be in the world at that time. So, I mean, if, if one was elected Pope at a time like that, he actually saw signs that were foretold by our Lord and by fathers and doctors of the Church, and finally St. Paul in Sacred Scripture, that uh, presaged the time of the Antichrist, or even indicated the Antichrist would already be present in the world. That would be a terrifying thought, to become the Vicar of Christ at a time like that. But think, I, God is calling upon me, possibly, to confront the Antichrist, or be confronted by the Antichrist, and the world of the Antichrist. That'd be a terrifying thought. So, um, I, uh, but at the same time, I mean, St. Pius X's faith was so strong that um, he was willing to accept that role if that's what God wanted of him. Mm -hmm. right. So, that's uh, the kind of the, 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 the quiet, dignified courage that we all have to have now as we face the prospect of what's happening in the world today. We have to have that same uh, very quiet but unshakable courage of St. Pius X, saying, well, if God has me here now for this reason. This is my time, my lifetime that God has given me, and he's placed me here in the world, this world now, and he wants something of me. He wants me to accomplish something for him. Then I have to be willing to do that, be willing to step up and, and do that, and not be uh, hiding, uh, not be like Jonah, you know, trying to uh, trying to escape. <laughs> but uh, you know, if God wants me to confront uh, the inhabitants of Nineveh and tell them, look, you know, uh, in so many days this place is going to be ruined, <laughs> you know. Um, then we uh, have to realize that uh, there, there is our destiny, there is our, you know, glory, there is our, our hope of salvation, and that's what we have to we have to rise to. That that's what traditional Catholics do. That's how I see traditional Catholics as they following the traditional Catholic faith, believing the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety. And the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and all the doctrines of the Church throughout the centuries, and um, and uh, without without wavering, without flinching, without hesitation, professing those 
truths and living that faith. And that means not only believing the traditional Catholic faith, but living it, and that is uh, adhering to and practicing the traditional Catholic religion in its entirety, in its integrity, not compromising with modernism in any way, not with uh, recognizing that the, the Novus Ordo is a revolution against Christ. It is what St. Pius X himself said. It is the synthesis of all heresies against the faith. That's what modernism is. And that is what has produced Vatican II. That is what has produced its, its whole me- mode of worship. And um, you know, I think Archbishop Vigano is expressing it very well and very powerfully. This is what it is. We have to unmask the Antichrist behind all of this and see that this is his work and refuse to, uh, to uh, go along with it and be part of it and promote it in any way. We have to practice the traditional Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic Mass, the traditional Latin Mass of the Roman Rite. That is what we adhere to, absolutely. Uh, the unbloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ and Calvary, that's the traditional Mass. And that's where we are. That's where we have to be, around the cross of Christ. The religious order that he established, right? <laughs> Significance of that. And um, we have to, uh, uh, you know, find our salvation in Christ's power working through the sacraments that he gave to us. <clears throat> the true traditional Catholic sacraments, not the contrived ceremonies that uh, that followed upon Vatican II, produced in the in the laboratories of modernists. Uh, so, in any case, that that I think is more than an opinion. <laughs> that is what the Church has always taught us to do: hold fast to the traditions that you've received. Second Thessalonians chapter two, in the time of the Antichrist, hold fast to the traditions you received, and they are not what the modernists have given us after Vatican II. Uh, Quite the contrary. So uh, being traditional Catholic, as far as I'm concerned, is the only way to go now. That's what the Church has always said we have to do in times of confusion and chaos, hold fast to the traditions of the Church. That would require us to completely reject the modernist changes of Vatican II and go back to practicing the old faith. Father, thanks for uh, taking the time to answer all of these questions. I know our viewers have many more questions that they would like to ask of you, but uh, I'll have to save those for a later program. Well, uh, Tom, we have your word that we will. Okay. Okay, that we have questions that we will get to, and I thank our our viewers for their patience with that. Uh, We received these questions from uh, actually a teacher who is uh, taking the, the Lord of the World of Robert U. Benson as in, in the literature class. And the students have a lot of questions, I guess. So I, I think it's interesting that the questions that have been proposed here evidently are questions from high school students who are reading the book. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So anyway, that might be um, of interest <laughs> of interest to our viewers. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, thanks for posing the questions. I'm glad you're reading the book. and I. I appreciate your giving some deep thought to it. Yes, Father, God bless you. Thank you, Tom. God bless all of our viewers, too. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.